Hi, my name is Ben Bolton and I'm the MD of Grace Church. I am delighted to welcome you to our first Insurance Unboxed podcast. These podcasts are made exclusively for our broking and underwriting community. And the idea is that they will complement the findings that we share with you from our benchmarking research surveys, surveys that so many of you help us with and for which thank you very much. We'll do some longer podcasts like today's and also some bite-sized episodes looking at various aspects of the market that are relevant to our community. Today I'm delighted to welcome Andrew McKee, who for those that don't know is a veteran of the London market with a career that spans nearly 35 years. He started at Sun Alliance and then moved to Chubb where he had a variety of senior underwriting roles and was responsible for the launch of Chubb's renowned and very successful master package product in the UK SME market. After Chubb, he moved to Mitsui and as CEO successfully rehabilitated the business such that it became a top quartile Lloyds performer by 2014 to 2015. When Mitsui merged with Amlin, Andrew oversaw the integration of Mitsui into MS Amlin and subsequently moved on to Cathedral where he undertook a strategic review and completed aspects of the integration with Lancashire Group, including a rebranding exercise, which actually he and I both worked on together. Never a man to sit still, Andrew is now involved with a number of his own businesses, including a startup in the insurance market, which sadly for now is under wraps, but it is one that we'll come back to in the future. In the podcast, Andrew and I discuss the current state of the market and how boards and underwriters might be thinking as the market shifts and evolves. In particular, Andrew talks about how he defined great underwriters when he was in charge of insurance businesses and offers some tips on how brokers and underwriters could collaborate better in a hardening marketplace. Andrew may have had a long career, but he is always refreshingly honest and forward-thinking. And it's not too much of a spoiler, I think, to say that he ends on a very upbeat note with regard to the insurance market. So without more ado, over to the podcast. Good, so welcome Andrew to the um, Grace Church Insurance Unboxed first podcast that we've done. I do other shows obviously, but this is a, a new a new one. So I'm glad you were able to uh, to make it for the first one. Um, we've, we've, we've just talked a bit about your background and so on, and you're obviously, um, you know, you've seen all sides of the industry over the past uh, 30 plus years. Um, what I just wanted to kick off really with was this has been a pretty tumultuous year in all sorts of ways, um, including for the insurance industry. But I just wanted to get your sort of take on where you see it now. You're not actually kind of in the, you know, in the in the kind of boardroom. So you presumably have quite a nice, interesting view of um, of what's going on in the market. Yeah, it's uh, well. Firstly, Ben, thank you for having me, and I'm uh, uh, privileged to be uh, the first up in this series of up podcasts. Uh, so, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Being being at one distance removed from the industry, I, I, I guess, gives me a very objective vantage point, and, and I'm able to uh, to observe and perhaps to comment on 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 what I see going on uh, without having any partisan viewpoint from being either you know sitting in, in any particular business so it's as you say it's been a massively tumultuous year uh, i think it would have been anyway for for the insurance industry but it'll be the year that's remembered uh rightly or wrongly and for good or for bad as as the year of covid so yeah. you know as we approach year end what what can we say for certain for sure well we're in a hard market there is no question about that yeah so for people who wondered a couple of years ago whether the days of the cycle had gone the answer is most certainly not and in my view the 
the combination of fear and greed, those very basic human instincts will ensure that our market is always cyclical. You, you combine those emotions with the fact that there's relative freedom for capital to move in and out of, of our marketplace means I think there will always be cycles, but each cycle will be slightly different and, and have slightly different characteristics. Right now, we have had 12 successive quarters of uniform price increases mm. globally. So that's three years. Uh, and the price increases are really across all lines and across all geographies. So without doubt, we are absolutely in, in, in a hard market. And it's likely to persist, I think, both on third party and first party lines, certainly through next year, through 2021. And for third party lines, where I think there is more, more price increase required to achieve rate adequacy, I think beyond 21. So there's still quite a lot of catch up to do before you could start to say this industry is back the, the, the insurance side is back in profit really and you can be certain of that obviously because yeah. there's, 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 there's zero in very low interest rates as well isn't it yeah and, and i think in some respects that's that that's a good thing because it concentrates people's minds on making an underwriting profit which is actually uh what the bulk of what all underwriters and all carriers are, are programmed to do. And I don't think we should be hiding mm. at any point behind interest rates. It's nice when they provide a favorable tailwind, mm. but the craft, what we're, what we're paid to do is to make pr profit from underwriting. So I don't think an end is in sight because the, the rate increases are badly needed. If, if you take Lloyd's as an example, on, a, on an accident year basis, adjusted and normalized for CAT, Lloyd's hasn't made an underwriting profit since 2014, and it's not going to make a profit this year. So the, the rate increases are, are are badly needed, and I think it's incumbent upon underwriters to look not just at rate increases, but at where price adequacy is reached. So for each class of business, you need to know when we actually get to a point where when pricing is adequate to allow sustainable profitability. Yeah. So we talk about this market always in a quite interesting kind of static way about rates and cycles and so on but actually the reality is that there is a very different structure of the market now isn't it there's some very large global players there's brokers who are consult so there's been a huge amount of consolidation and i guess there will be more what i wanted to just ask you because you've been in the boardroom and you've obviously been through these sort of um, some of these mergers and so on. What do you think now with the market as it is? What do you think will the boardroom, you know, what do you think they'll be talking about and what will be on their minds and the discussions in those boardrooms? Because we obviously talk to a lot of brokers. I think it'd just be interesting to know what, they're, what they might be thinking. Yeah, I think uh, at a very basic level, I, I think all boards will be, the, probably their number one concern is, have we captured all of our COVID exposures and are we adequate? adequately reserved. So I think that very immediate tactical response is is what the board will want reassurance on. And I think that's understandable. Yeah. I think and I hope that boards would then be taking a slightly longer term perspective. You know, I believe in the old adage that you should fix the roof when the sun is shining. From a point from the point of view of rating, the sun is shining. However, a hard market it can do a number of things. It will absolutely help the balance sheet of of, of underwriters and you know, Albert Einstein said that the most powerful force in the world was compound interest. <laughs> well, you know, that applies to compound rate increases. And as we've already said, we're heading into the fourth year of rate increases. So that makes a huge difference. But I would hope boards would see through the actual impact of rate increase and realize that it can hide a multitude of inefficiencies 
and, and structural inefficiencies in a business. So what I hope a hard market doesn't do, and I think what is incumbent upon a board is to ensure that whilst the rate increase is very welcome, that all the other initiatives in order to make sure that businesses are efficient and structurally aligned and interacting properly with their underwriters, that none of those things are neglected because it's very easy to hide behind the rate increase and think yeah. that the world is perfect and everything is fixed within the house when in fact now is exactly the time to not dampen the urgency to, to look at productivity, to look at efficiency, to look at how we interact with brokers. Now is the time to really double down on that. The reality about price increases is it does nothing to reduce cost. It does nothing to improve efficiency. And really importantly, it does absolutely nothing to improve the customer journey. So I hope the boards are are seeing through the immediate good news and, and looking at the longer term implications uh, and, and not using rate as a way to ignore the fact that there are some pretty significant structural deficiencies right across the industry that need to be rectified. And, and, so, and, and on another really basic point, uh, I would hope boards are, and I'm sure they are, sensible enough to realise that their underwriters weren't idiotic and daft and irresponsible when they were losing money, and they're not infallible savants now that they're making money. <laughs> the, the middle ground is always the case. Yeah, a balance. A nice balance. So it's, it is a different world, as you as you allude to, and it isn't only about managing the cycle and everything else. There's now a lot of other things crashing in on the industry, not least the BI claims and reputation and um, regulation. And um, as you mentioned there, the whole um, swing, if you like, of the industry towards the customer, um, which I guess is going to be increased by the broker. So what do you what would you be thinking about if you were running one of these businesses today? Would it would it be very different from, say, 10 or 15 years ago, or would it be the same sort of stuff? Well, I think the principles are the same. Uh, I, I think it does come back to, to the customer. You know, what are we doing to enhance the customer journey? And, you know, there's, in, in my view, the experience with COVID has been negative for the industry. I think reputationally it, it has done damage. And... If you, what I think is different today is that people are rightly preoccupied with making sure that they use the electronic advances and digital efficiencies to improve the insurance transaction. But we should never lose sight of, of the basics. And I think some of the things we did better in yesteryear or, or when, when I was starting out was things like making sure we knew what our wording said. There were wording experts in, in business. You know, what we said as a promise, which is a crime in a contract. And I think it's pretty poor when we're not able to answer very simple questions from brokers around what that contract says. We should be able to answer as underwriters all mm. hypo hypothetical questions around if X happens, does the contract respond? And I think it's pretty poor that through the COVID process, it has been proven in certain cases that we simply aren't able to rely on that contract or to interpret it. And I've had to go to the courts for that to happen. Yeah. You know, that, that, that really shouldn't happen again. So it's one thing, and I think we should embrace all the digital enhancements we can. I think electronic trading should underpin everything we do going forward. But please, let's not lose, lose sight of the basics. You know, mm -hmm. we sell a contract. We need to understand what that says. And we really need to be able to answer questions from brokers about what that says. It puts them in a really difficult position with their clients, but when they can't get answers as to what the, not just the intent, but what the actual legal wording delivers. Yeah, and I think we are seeing that in the research as well, is that there is a lot of... Um, uh, dissatisfaction I think it's fair to say with that and I think that is consequentially 
knocking on into the perception of service that we're seeing to some extent from the organisations. And some of this all gets intertwined with the hardening market as well. So it's uh, an interesting, it's always an interesting time, isn't it, when it shifts from a soft to a hard market, but with COVID on top as well, it's a, it's, it's a time at which I suppose relationships can be made or broken. I, I think that's right. And a hard market shouldn't be all purely about rate. And, and I, I think you know, carrier companies can get a bit fixated with rate. It's also a time to really stand back and look at terms and conditions. Uh, and that's not just looking at deductibles. So, so we stop pound swapping at the lower end, but it's actually taking time and, and, and looking at the contract and making sure we are giving the customer what they, what, what they need. And so you know, it should give us a, an opportunity to look at the breadth of coverage and to be really clear what it is that, that, that we're selling. So what do you think is the sort of, at this stage, and, and, and I know it's, it's always a different, as you say, it's always different, each cycle's different, each, the circumstances and the context is different, but what do you think the sort of psychological state of the underwriters in the market will be at the moment? I mean, apart from the fact they're all having to sit at home and do this job and so on, but we can talk about that in a minute. I, I think for... You know, we, we haven't had a hard market for, for some time now. So for some underwriters, this will be a, a new experience and it's probably quite difficult for them interacting with with brokers and selling rate increases. It's it, it's very easy not to sell them, just to just to insist on them, which I think is a mistake. So I think psychologically, underwriters have been used to acquiescing to saying, yes, n- now the instruction from head office is to push back to maximise the rate. That's a difficult shift to take. And my advice would be, it's all about a partnership with, with the broker. And you've got to remember the broker has to talk to the client as a client. Clients pay the premiums. They keep all of us in, in business. So think about the impact of indiscriminate rate increases on a client who, who maybe even has, hasn't had any claims. So what I would say underwriters should be doing is looking to differentiate. It's very easy particularly from a head office point of view, just to impose blanket rate increases. But, you know, that, that's difficult for brokers to sell. So being fair does not mean being equal. You know, different clients deserve different treatments and mm. we should be a lot more discriminating in terms of how we react to a hardening market. Don't lose sight of the fact that it's a partnership with the brokers. So if underwriters default to squeezing every single penny or cent of rate that they can at the moment, simply because they can, then they can't really complain when the pendulum shifts and the market softens if the underwriter, if, they, if the brokers respond in kind and look to make absolutely maximize the price decreases that that they can secure so i'd say take take a longer term perspective try try to differentiate and and understand that you know the market will will swing back again and do you think that that i mean you talked about fear and greed earlier on and um I, I guess all the kind of old cynics in the market would say that actually probably nothing ever changes really, and that's what happens at the at the you know the price point at the selling point. But do you think there is a shift? Do you think there is more of a long term that long term view about those relationships now? Do you think carriers do take that, or do you think it's still a bit chaotic and a bit just you know all about the gut reaction and the the war between the broker and the underwriter? I think it's it, it's a bit of both. There's no question that that carriers and I think particularly the company carriers take a longer term perspective and are and are increasingly sophisticated with the way they in, engage with yeah. with with distribution. I, I think 
the metrics around that have, have developed and, and I think that is a much more mature interaction than it used to be in other parts of the market. I think there is a way to go. Mm-hmm. I, I think as certain elements of, of the London market, I think have reviewed, have viewed interacting with brokers firstly as a one-way street. It, it's, it's for the broker to make all the running and take all, all the initiative and, and also something that should be viewed as not necessarily a partnership, but, but also a, a relationship that should be viewed with suspicion. And I think pockets of that mentality remains, but it's getting better. Yeah, 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 that's interesting because it is in the end about relationships, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, the market cannot innovate unless there is cooperation between underwriters and, uh, and brokers. And, you know, one thing, one strength of the London market is its ability to to innovate and, and that hasn't been to the fore in, in, in recent years uh, but going forward you know I think at a senior level what should brokers and underwriters be doing they should be recognizing the fact that at a macro level you know every time there is a nat cat or a sequence of nat cats the economic loss is about double the insured loss so there's a huge right. opportunity yeah. to sell more more risk transfer yeah. around natural catastrophe exposures that's what I think the industry should be doing collectively, that's brokers and, and carriers. And also whenever risk managers are, are asked about, you know, what are the top 10 risks that, th- that their businesses face, about half of them at the moment aren't insurable. Yeah. So, you know, unless there is cooperation and trust between carriers and brokers, those gaps won't be plugged and they need to be. Mm. They need to be if insurance is to continue to do, to actually be an enabler for, for the global economy. So, so this might be one of the differences in this situation might be now that there is going to be more innovation more thinking about that i saw something the other day um from lloyd's actually which was about the potential increase in reputational risk products that actually would get to really about reputation not the stuff at the fringes yeah i i think there is definitely a lot more thinking around you know innovating and and true product development you know just packaging a product differently and selling it isn't creating a new product and probably the last really substantially new products were DNO followed by, by cyber. So mm-hmm. we haven't a great track record of, of, of actually formulating products that gain traction in, in, in the market. Do I think there'll be more of it? I, I think there absolutely needs to be. But again, the danger of a hard market is that from a carrier point of view, you can just hide behind the rate and you kind of lose the impetus or the desire or the urgency for in innovation. So coming back to what do I think board should be doing, absolutely making sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. I get that. So what, just going, I mean, going back and looking forward, what do you, what did you always see as the real attributes of successful underwriters? What really did you always feel, you know, kind of behaviorally or characteristically made them good? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because there is no doubt there is a set and a blend of characteristics that differentiate successful underwriters who perform, who, who will always be in the top quartile, whether the market is, is soft or hard and do it over a lengthy period of time. And it's really interesting to drill down into what those characteristics might be. We used to have a phrase or an acronym at Mitsui, which we thought, and, and I hold that belief to be true today, kind of summarized what defines a successful underwriter? And we call it a case, C-A-S-E. Mm-hmm. So firstly, curious. A good underwriter needs to be curious about what's going on in the world. You know, I'd like to see if you walk past an underwriter's desk that they're reading the FT, they're reading the Economist, they're thinking about the broader world and the macroeconomic developments that will in- eventually I- impact their world. 
irrespective of whether they're cargo underwriters or property underwriters or DNO underwriters. So curious, analytical. You have to be able to see the big picture and you have to be able to live comfortably in, in the detail, particularly as more and more uh, underwriting is becoming portfolioized. You need to be able to have the you need to have the analytical skills yeah. to really drill down and interrogate that level of data. So curious, analytical, strategic. There's a time to grow. There's a time not to grow. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. frankly, many underwriters at the bottom of a soft market would be outperformed by a vacancy, meaning doing nothing is the right thing to do. And you need to be strategic enough to know that, or to know what parts of the of your portfolio you can grow and what parts you should just hold. I think portfolio management is really, really important. And the yeah. fact that that Decile 10 was seen as almost a revolutionary development at Lloyd's kind of was disappointing because it should be it should be the first thing you do and it should be subliminally built into what you do when you're yeah. managing a portfolio. So yeah. curious, analytical, strategic in, in the way you manage your portfolio and entrepreneurial. All right. And this comes this comes down to the interaction with your brokers. You can have all the technical ability in the world, but unless you have commercial ac acumen and the ability to do a deal, it's not going to take you very far. And I think all of the successful underwriters embody those four attributes. And what and, and, and they also have a growth imperative. They recognize the need that irrespective of the market, market conditions, you need to have forward yeah. momentum. Yeah. And you might have to cull parts of your portfolio, but you need to be smart enough and good enough to replace that with business that you're comfortable with at any given time. Yeah. So I would say curious, analytical, strategic, entrepreneurial, forward-looking, and, and, and recognizing that you need to grow and you need to progress yeah. your portfolio. Yeah. And I'd probably, probably add to that today, you need to have a mindset that embraces technology. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Which could come into the curious area as well, couldn't it? That you yeah. just get that use, so you're using the enablers. I mean, I, I, I realise now I shouldn't have bothered doing 18 months work with Lloyd's on that, um, our, our um, underwriter behaviours characteristics <laughs> with their analytics team because I could have taken it from you. But actually, in all seriousness, they're very, very, very close to the growth mindset stuff that we found um, when we looked at the characteristics that did right across the market um, align with profitability. Yeah. And yeah. yet I do sense that there's still a lot of the market is in still in that fixed mindset um you know that it, it, it's still that it's all about just the technical and how my prowess in that area not uh, those relationships and that collaboration if you like yeah i i, I think that's probably true you know there, there's a reason why certain underwriters class underwriters outperform others and do it consistently and and it's because they embody a, a blend of those attributes and and they have that that mindset mm -hmm. and others don't it's very easy still to hide in the pack it's yeah. very easy to blame the market when you make losses it's very easy to get wrapped up in anecdote and gossip in the london market as opposed to fact and reality you know and yeah. i think the good underwriters don't do that or sorry do do that and the less good ones are able to hide in the pack while still claiming to be leaders when really they're not adding anything other than expense. And so you talked about technology, and that is obviously now coming in with, with PPL's um, usage going through the roof and then Whitespace coming in too, and Lloyd's yeah. through Blueprint embracing a sort of competitive market with more, I guess, more sort of technology and around trading. Do you, I, I, I suppose in the end that is going to, 
but you know both help with cost and efficiency as well and therefore you might need actually fewer underwriters but more of these kind of better underwriters would you would that be the sort of scenario or is it just or is it or you'd see it differently no i i, I think that's the inevitable evolution for, for, for the market is if it is to you know survive and, and, and prosper fewer better lead underwriters I, I think particularly in a Lloyd con- in a Lloyd's context you will need follow underwriters but their role will be different and, 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 and should be different I think technology is there really to improve productivity and and, and reduce expense I I think there will be room for the kind of algorithm-driven underwriting that, that that's coming in now, but that doesn't necessarily displace good follow underwriters who simply want to do follow. Yeah, yeah. So there's still a role for the traders, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think if you, and I think some of your your research un, uncovered this. You know, the the reality is in two thousand and. 18, I think the top 20 syndicates at Lloyd's had a, an average combined ratio of 93%. Yeah. The bottom 20 syndicates had a, an average combined ratio of 133. Yeah. So there's a huge delta between yeah. the good performers and the average and, and poor performers. And I think you know you just need to recognize that and say, would it not have been better if the bottom 20 were following the top 20? Yes. At a much reduced cost base. And, you know, intuitively and factually absolutely yes and that i think has to be the way that the model evolves even in 2019 which which was a better year it was 102 combined for for lloyd's uh, but you know two-thirds of syndicates didn't make money so two-thirds were unprofitable Mm. yeah don't i know it's hard to um do analysis of success when you've got that many that are effectively (laughs) failing (laughs) so Use technology definitely to improve communication, to, to, to make the distillation of granular information digestible for underwriting. But then you need all, all those other at- attributes in terms of the skill of underwriting in order to, you know, to make a proposition profitable. Mm. So one, one of the really kind of key questions I want to ask you about, and it's, it's um, been raised as, a, as an issue, is that many of the brokers on the other side have not really experienced um, a hard market, you know, particularly the younger ones. And, and obviously many of them are now sitting at home trying to work out what this, what this means. And, and it's obviously more difficult to access business, I suspect, than it, than it was, although they are trading online. But I'd be interested to know if you if you sort of thought of that other side and what tips or things you think brokers should be thinking about, given that we've talked about the kind of underwriters disposition in this kind of market? Well, I think, uh, I think for underwriters, it can be difficult and, or, or sorry for brokers, it can be difficult and a hard market, you know, they, they have direct contact with clients and it's really difficult to explain to them how a market, an underwriting market that was, you know, crying out for your business two, three, four years ago uh, is now insisting on 100% rate increases for that same business and you may not have had a loss. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy mm. with brokers in, in, in a hard market. It's tempered a little by the fact that when the shoe was on the other foot, they, they were equally vociferous and aggressive in yeah. achieving uh, price decreases. And again, it comes back to what I said about both sides showing a little more balance and moderation in order to temper the extremities of, of the cycle. I think under, brokers can do a good job helping underwriters un, understand that, helping them understand that clients are different and that whereas they will accept rate increases where they are merited, help them push back or you know understand that for some clients that just isn't the right outcome and, and isn't justifiable. So I think for brokers, 
it's a two-way street for them as well to communicate with underwriters and and also to, to keep underwriters' minds focused on on the need for in, innovation, not simply being fixated with rate. Yeah. But I do have sympathy with them, particularly around COVID and particularly around the inability in certain quarters of the market to explain what the contract is doing. Yeah. And a lot of them have said it's quite difficult now because they don't see the whites of the eyes of the underwriter and they can't sell into them in the same way that they could before. So it's quite tough. It's probably harder to intimidate over Zoom, but yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is type tough, but, but, but you know, there is a serious point there, uh, which is that you know, the market has responded really, really well, I mean, fantastically well uh, in, in terms of how remote trading, remote communication, you know, remote working has worked. I, I think that's been a real success. Uh, and I think all sides of the market deserve credit for, for that. Yeah. But there is no doubt that there will always be place, not just place, but it, it is essential that there is face-to-face yeah. trading as yeah. well. What you lose is that spark of creativity, that circulation of ideas that innovative conversation that you have with somebody and, and i think the market is is struggling for that and i think it's more difficult for brokers to make their case and yeah. easier for underwriters to just impose blanket rate increases when you're doing it via a screen as opposed face to face so again i have sympathy with the broken community um, you know it's a difficult time for them it is it is it, i can i can get that and i think that is coming through in the research and so the my thought was that the those that have that um i wondered whether your final word on case was going to be empathy but that understanding putting yourself in the shoes of others um might not be a quite a quality to sort of yeah. amplify at the moment um it could be empathy i think i said entrepreneurial but it absolutely could be yeah could be empathy. yeah yeah it is it is it is um uh sometimes you you, you do sort of see and we see it in research some of the situations and you think well there was zero empathy there <laughs> and i wonder yeah. what what the payback will be at some point so um i suppose yeah. that and, and 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 that's what fuels the cycle you know if, if if the side that feels it is being hard done by at the moment and if that is the brokers think ah yes but when the pendulum swings we'll get our own back then we're just into you know it, the business mm. will always be the industry will always be cyclical but let's take the extremes out of it and i think the clients deserve that yeah it's very it's very think- difficult Robert Hiscox, I think, said that he, when, he, when he came into the market, he thought because he felt he was a clever chap and knew a lot of stuff and felt that not everybody in the market when he came in was that clever. He sort of saw that he had the opportunity to to make his mark. And um, I wonder if that is sort of still prevails is that, it, you know, the, the clever people really aren't, you know, the kind of you know necessarily the rocket science always. It's the people who have that intuition and that ability to have those honest conversations and just say, look, how are we going to work this so that we both make some money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, I there's probably less of that uh, freedom to, to, yeah. to actually have those conversations and perhaps to experiment. You know, we're, we're, in, we're in a different world. And I guess when Robert Hiscock started out, then, then, then when I started out, there's a lot more regulation and governance, and perhaps we've we've become a little too constrained by that. Uh, I think the real strength of the London market, without a doubt, is the intellectual capital that resides in the square mile, and, and maybe we haven't been utilising that to, to the full in, in, in terms of innovating around product and solutions. Uh, and maybe that's something that, maybe, maybe out of COVID, that, that will be something that people reapply their minds to. Yeah. Great. This has been great. I just want to finish off, Andrew, on a couple of thoughts about the get your crystal ball out. Think about next year and maybe the next couple of years. 
Um, you mentioned really about the lead follow. I think that'd be sort of certainly one thing to touch on about the future and what's going to happen, what you kind of see happening in that space. That's something that did sort of seem to get a little bit um, put in the background by Lloyd's, I think, and it was one of the biggest issues coming out of the first blueprint. Um, that'd be interesting. And I was also just interesting in, in maybe what more um, sort of specific issues about the Lloyd's room, which has been talked about in the trading room and whether that'll all change and electronic trading. Mm-hmm. Just your, okay. th- just your thoughts would be good. Uh, I Well, coming back to the lead follow yeah. model, uh, I would be, I guess, a passionate advocate of that because I think it makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you look at, you know, the great strength of Lloyd's is the fact that it's a subscription market and, and that risk can be, can be divided out and shared and hopefully that creates capacity. But Lloyd's competes with massive global companies if they're Allianz or Chubb. Now, let's just take an example where one of those companies is looking at a £100 million property account. We have to put out a £100 million limit. Yeah. That company will do all of the things that you need to do to underwrite and bind the business. And say there are 20 tasks to do that, from reviewing the submission, from looking at the claims experience, from doing your due, your due diligence, from running your pricing models, from doing your exposure management, from doing your sanctions checks. Say there are 20 tasks you have to do. Yeah not from quote to bind, from receiving submission to binding it, then a big company will do that once. Yeah. If it's a hundred million pound property account, Lloyds will have probably 10 carriers mm. or 10 syndicates involved in that who are each doing those 20 tasks for that one piece of business. Yeah. So that's 200 versus 20 or 180 more tasks yeah. that, that are being undertaken. And I'm being extreme here to, to make the point. So it seems to me a logical answer to that is that one lead carries out the bulk of those functions and the rest of the market checks some of that yeah. but it effectively acts as responsible follow and those responsible follows are governed by a suitably calibrated set of minimum standards yeah so to me that just makes perfect sense and, and i know it's difficult and i know there's implications around headcount it has implications for ego and status but to me it simply has to be the or it, it is a very logical way for lloyd's to reinvent itself and and to address what is a real existential problem, which 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 is the expense base. Yeah, if, and I've if, heard certainly that you know we've been doing some work on that with the brokers, and that is one of the big issues, and that why they're saying there is business that is just not profitable for them to bring into the market because of that reason. Yeah, I, I think there's there's the operating expense, which I, th- I think for an average Lloyd syndicate is, is 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 fourteen points, and I would say you could run a lean follow only syndicate at one third of that. Mm. Mm. Then there's the issue of, of the acquisition costs, which are too high. And and, and, and that's a, perhaps a more complex and long term problem. But if acquisition costs are 25 or 30 points, then for, for me, it's difficult to say to a client who's paying the premium, 30p out of every pound that you pay for your insurance isn't there, isn't available for you to pay your losses. Yeah. And so just on to finish off, just on trading and the Lloyd's room and what does that, it's very, very empty at the moment. <laughs> and even um, uh, Chairman Bruce Carnegie Brown has said that it might just become a coffee shop again. <laughs> Is well, that possible? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I'm a, I guess I'm a bit of a t- traditionalist, but, but, but surely the answer is a combination of electronic trading 
with face-to-face -face yeah. conversations, face-to-face -face discussions. I come back to what I said earlier, the strength and the differentiator for the London market is the intellectual capital experience that is present in the square mile. And I think a very important part of that is people meeting, sparking off each other, discussing ideas, in innovating. So from my point of view, there will always be a place for the Lloyds market and for people to meet face-to-face but obviously you want to make those conversations as efficient as possible. And there's a big part of the transaction that can be done electronically, but I would always, I, I, I do not think London will remain differentiated and, and, and remain really superior in the way it transacts insurance if it doesn't capitalize on the fact that there's so much intellectual capital in such, as, in such a condensed geographical area, yeah. but those people need to meet and spark off each other. Brilliant. Well, on that really positive note, Andrew, I'd just like to thank you. It's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed that. I've covered a lot of territory in a short time. Um, I just wish you and your family a good Christmas break because we're really not that far away from that, whatever our Christmas is going to be like. Um, and we'll catch up again in, in, the, in what I hope will be a bit more of a normal year next year. But actually, I suppose none of us really knows. <laughs> great talking to you and uh, likewise have a great christmas and for all of us a prosperous new year hopefully yeah thanks andrew thank you so thank you andrew for giving the time to be interviewed and i hope that you all found that interesting we're looking in future at a number of topics for future podcasts including some on particular classes of business and a series on the user experiences of different technologies possibly including white space and ppl if you've got any suggestions for topics that you'd like to see covered, or even if you'd like to be on one of the podcasts, do drop me a line. Thanks again. And for now, goodbye and stay well. Mm -hmm.